0: I <music> you Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this day, this opportunity to gather together as a community, to once again dive into your word, to encounter you, and to allow you to speak to us. We pray, Lord, that our hearts, minds, and ears would be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store for each one of us. You knew that each one of us would be here tonight. And so you have a message of love, of compassion, of mercy, of joy for each one of us. And so help us to be ready to receive whatever that is. Help us to be ready to respond to whatever you have to share with us tonight. Whatever may be pulling us away from this place, distracting us, taking our focus away, Lord, we pray that you would cast out those things, that you would bind and renounce any presence of the evil one or his demons, and that you would cast them out in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would send your peace and your Holy Spirit to guide us during this time. We lay this time at your feet, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in, have a seat. We are in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Uh, The Passage on a brother who sins. And so we're going to read this passage as we always do twice through. First time through, we'll just get a picture for what is being said here. This as Jesus speaking specifically to the disciples. And as far as we know, they are in Capernaum now. So they've made their way back down from the northern area above Galilee, where the past two weeks events have happened. They're down now in the Sea of Galilee area, again, making their way slowly to Jerusalem. And this is, uh, this whole chapter, it seems, uh, is that is completely private between Jesus and the disciples. Okay, So we'll talk a little bit more about the context surrounding it, but just so you know kind of where we've been since the last week. Last week, we were still kind of up in the northern region above Galilee. They've now made their way down to Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. And this is Jesus just privately to his disciples. So first time through, this is Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, amen, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which you are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, There am I in the midst of them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So that was the first time through, and I get an image or a picture for what Jesus is saying here to the disciples. Second time through, now I invite you to listen a little more closely to the words as they are read. See if any particular word or phrase stands out to you. Again, we're in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Okay, so listen closely, see what stands out to you specifically, not to theologically interpret the passage, but what personally relates to what's going on in your life or sparks something in your own mind. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, amen, I say to you, If two of you are gathered on earth about anything for which they are to pray, or two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to reflect on the things that stood out to you, especially those things that uh, sparked something in your own mind. And any questions that this reading poses for you, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes to share those. If you're listening or watching, uh, please let us know. But for those of us here, uh, spend some time at your tables doing that. You can join with another table if you'd like to, if you're smaller. But just take about the next 10 minutes. What stood out to you? Why do you think it did? What questions do you have about this reading? And then we'll bring it back to the larger group. (laughs) So a little bit about this passage uh, and what's, what's happening around it is also very helpful for the context. So we only get five verses of this, but this is a a kind of a central part of one of the main discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you remember, Matthew organizes his gospel with five main teaching discourses of Jesus to kind of mimic the five teaching books of the Torah. So there is in the Gospel of Matthew, the first is the Sermon on the Mount, then the Missionary Discourse, the Parable Discourse, and then this discourse, which is the Church Order Discourse. And then later on in Matthew, we have the eschatological discourse, which is all about the end times and the things that will come uh, when when the kingdom of God is fulfilled. So in here, all of chapter 18 basically is the church order discourse. And so it's fitting that Jesus is talking just to the disciples, because the disciples, or at least the 12 apostles, they are the original 12 first bishops, and the highest of which is Peter, who is the first pope. And so they are the ones who are going to need to know how this church Jesus intended to institute is meant to be organized. So, first and foremost, this is good evidence for the fact that jesus did he did intend to start a church. Some people like might look at Matthew sixteen, they'll look at the language and they'll look at that instance where Jesus gives Peter the keys, and they'll see it as something very symbolic, or then they'll see Peter rebuking uh, Jesus like we heard in last uh, last week's gospel as a sign that okay, that fell away, and Jesus is no longer intending to do this. But here, Jesus is clearly intending that the church that he set up is going to be a structure that people can turn to. In fact, this is the only other place in the Gospel of Matthew where that word, ekklesia, for church, is used. And so if Jesus said, I'm going to be with you always until the end of the age, and he says, I'm going to set up a church so that if you have an issue, you can go to them and they will help mediate this dispute, but he knows that this church is going to fall apart, then Jesus, in essence, would have been lying if he didn't intend to set up a church. So, he sets up a church with Peter at the head, and then he gives instruction for how are you to use this church when you have issues. So, it's evidence, more evidence for the fact that this is exactly what Jesus intended to do, how he intended for the church to function, at least one of the ways he intended for the church to function. Now, pay attention to where this falls in the middle of this discourse. If you go to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, or the, of the, this chapter, 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, you have the uh, the interaction between Jesus and the apostles saying that uh, the youngest among you are the greatest, that elevating you, you have to have the faith uh, of like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he he doubles down on that and says, if anyone leads one of these little ones astray, it would be better for a great millstone to be thrown around their neck and for them to be hurled into the sea. And so he starts this whole idea of church order and what the church is intended to represent by reminding the disciples that we need to have faith like children and that we need to make sure that we're not causing scandal. And so immediately we're presented with this reality that we have a church and then problems may result in this church and that you need to be representatives to ensure those problems don't invade the church. And then that evolves into this statement we have on a brother who sins. Now, right before this passage, we have the parable of the lost sheep, and I think that's very appropriate because if that wasn't there, we could interpret what we're reading today in kind of a harsher tone. Okay, if someone is doing something bad, just get them out. And we can, we can falsely interpret it that, this passage this way. That's not what this passage is intended to represent. So right before it, Jesus teaches the parable of the lost sheep. The parable that what one of you, if one of your sheep wanders away, would not leave the 99 to go off in search of the one. And so just before this passage on how to take corrective action, Jesus is reminding the disciples that no one is expendable. No one is expendable. Every sinner is worth saving. Okay, so let's remember that. And then right after this, we have the parable of the unforgiving servant, where it says, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, as many as 70 times, seven times. And then imagine there's a steward that has this great debt, or a servant that has this great debt that he can't pay, and his master forgives his debt, but then he turns around, and someone who owes him a lesser amount of money, he holds him to it. He uses that as an example to say, you need to exact mercy and forgiveness to the degree that you've received it from God. So see how this is sandwiched between two very merciful passages? We need to be very careful how harshly we interpret this passage. And so it's very clear what Jesus is doing here. A, he's setting up a hierarchical church that we are meant to go to in matters of disputes for direction that can exercise the authority it was given by Christ. But in that authority, we need to make sure that we are remembering the mercy of God, that no one is just to be kicked out, no one is to be excluded or not sought after. So that is the context. It also helps, I think, to put into context the first reading this week. The first reading is from Ezekiel chapter 33. Just a few verses from Ezekiel 33. The prophet Ezekiel is being spoken to by God, and God tells him, You, son of man, I have appointed you as sentinel for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you must warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked, you must die, and you do not speak up to warn the wicked about their ways, they shall die in their sins but I will hold you responsible for their blood.
1: If however you warn them
0: and they turn away from their uh, if they do not turn away from their ways, then they shall die in their sins but you shall save your life. So in the kind of theme of the readings this week, we're being set up by the first reading to show that you and I have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters to correct and to preach the word of God to them when they go astray. Because if we have the opportunity to do that and we don't, and we bear some responsibility in the body of Christ. It says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if one part suffers, one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And so that's why this piece of kind of authoritative instruction is so essential, because we need to know how do we go about these disputes? How do we correct one another while also not falling into pride and not ensuring that we aren't open to that same correction? not falling into the trap of thinking that we're perfect and that we have it all together. How is this meant to work? So that all kind of puts up the context, sets up the context for this passage. The last thing I'll mention, then we can move into questions. It's keep in mind also that Matthew was writing this around the year 55-ish, or sorry, somewhere between 55 and 60 uh, AD, somewhere in there. And this is a time of very heavy persecution in the church, a lot of tensions, a lot of disputes about theology and what it means to be church. And so this kind of instruction is very, very necessary, even more so at this time, because the church is in disarray. It needs a type of order. It needs something it can rely on and all of the persecutions people are facing, they better be sure that they're being persecuted for the right thing, that they know what it is that they believe and what they're talking about. And if people are preaching something else, they have enough attack that they're dealing with in the church. They need to make sure that all of their brothers and sisters know what it is that they are believing, know what it is to respond or how to respond to people who are gone astray, and so uh, in Titus chapter three verse ten, Paul gives instruction to Titus where he says, after a first and second warning, break off contact with a heretic. He's giving the same instruction, recognizing that if this is happening in the church, a heretic is someone who's baptized and then rejects the faith, then it's doing a detrimental, uh, it's having detrimental consequences to the health of the church. And we need to recognize that is, that's the same consequence of someone putting a millstone around their neck and being thrown, thrown into the sea. It's causing scandal. It doesn't help the body of Christ as a whole. And so having clarity, having a means to be able to uh, clarify different disputes, and to ensure that truth and the mercy of God are, above all, always winning out in the church. So that's why this passage is so important. There's a lot more I could say about this, but I want to hear your questions, and I'm sure these things will come up as we uh, answer them. Yes. Did Christ
2: make this bind-loose
0: statement twice? Yes, so Christ did make this bind-loose statement twice. Once to Peter, and Peter alone, when Peter confesses, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, at Caesarea Philippi, and he makes him the first pope. And then here, he extends that authority to all of the disciples who will be the first apostles. This is the twelve who are with him. Uh, at least that's how we can interpret it. So they are, even, even if there's an extension of that, these people represent the first authoritative figures in the church. So he didn't
2: say this after, after the resurrection,
0: did so he? Could. No, he gives them authority to forgive and retain sins in John chapter 20. Um, but this binding and loosing, so that language is similar. But in Matthew, no, all of this happens before the resurrection. Because part of Jesus' saving mission is to set up an institution where his saving mission can continue to be carried out. And he needs to make sure they understand that they have the authority and how they exercise that authority before everything that's going to happen to him takes place. Yeah, so it happens to both. But notice here, there's no giving of the keys. The keys are only given once, and they're given to the leader, to Peter. So the the ability to bind and loose, that's given to the other bishops, the first bishops, the apostles. And all bishops still to this day have that authority. Uh, but, only one has the keys. Yes?
1: Uh, where are the apostles, uh, the original apostles, at this point in time, between 55 and
0: 60 AD? Where are all of them when this is being written? Uh, so, some have already died. Uh, I think we have the death of, um, of one of the, uh, I can't remember which James, but one of the Jameses in Acts of the Apostles. Um, some of them may have also been martyred that early. But they are uh, spreading in every imaginable direction, preaching the gospel. So Thomas goes to India. I believe Andri- uh, Andrea, Andrew goes up to Armenia. Um, Saint James uh, is believed to have gone all the way to Spain and come back, or at least some legends say that they're going all over the known world at that time to preach this new message of Jesus Christ. So, and then Paul is out doing the same thing. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, verses 17 and 18 seem very much so oriented towards uh, an apostolic kind of dissertation from Jesus telling. The apostles what to do. Uh, I was wondering, what could we take from that in practicing life just as lay people?
0: Yes. Yeah. So verses 17 and 18, they have to do with involving the church, but recognize that's like step three, right? So this is if your brother sins against you. Now, if this was just meant to be an exercise of the church, we wouldn't need the first two steps, right? It would always just be, get the church involved. So this is not just an action for priests or for the church hierarchy. This is if someone in the community of baptized believers is doing something sinful or scandalous, what do you do about it as another believer? So our job is to, A, first, recognize that sin or scandal is happening and go after that sin to correct it. Okay? And remember, this is between baptized believers. Okay? So other people who profess to be Christians and who are seeking to live that out. Now, if someone who is, uh, has fallen away, they, they actively say, oh, I'm no longer a practicing member of the church. Um, you know, that might be a little gray area. But especially those who are unbaptized, like our job for them is to evangelize them. Okay? But those who are you know, claiming to be active members of the, the body of Christ, if they're going out and living a different way, then we need to be wary of that. I'll tell you a story. Uh, This was not about me. This was about one of the previous youth ministers here. I won't tell you which one, Um, but when they first got hired, the priest who hired them said, uh, your first job is you need to kill this ministry because this ministry is causing scandal. And it was one of the ministries that this person was in charge of, and they had a reputation in this ministry for coming and helping out, but everyone knew they would go party on the weekends, and we're making this like really bad example of the ministry. And so this person, literally, and it was a beloved ministry. I mean, people still sometimes talk about this. Uh, and so this person had to like kill this ministry and get rid of it because it had this reputation for scandal. I mean, that's, that like it's it's, we think we live in like this massive, you know, seven billion person world, but work gets around real quick, you know, especially in the Catholic world and in what I've heard called as the OC bubble, you know, which makes me laugh because I grew up in literally this like one of the smallest towns. But like, um, so like to think that this place of you know a million people is a bubble is funny to me. But it is like stuff gets around very quickly. And so we have to be conscious of that and wary of that. And so uh, the ability to cause scandal is something that's real. So we, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. And this, this is not just something that is part of the, the, uh, the Old Testament, or the New Testament. It's part of the Old Testament. That in order to love one another, we need to be able to correct our neighbor. This is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. It says, you shall not hate any of your kindred in your heart. Reprove your neighbor openly so that you do not incur sin because of that person have you ever heard if you've ever done a confession you've probably heard this you've said it in the act of contrition it's the prayer that you say you say at the end of it help me to avoid the near occasion of sin or in some versions help me to avoid the people places and things that lead me to sin and so our responsibility is to recognize this is causing scandal to the church but this also has a threat to my own spiritual health and so how this applies to us is that we need to be recognizing where sin and scandal are popping up in the body of Christ and be able to lovingly reach out and be able to try and correct it. And that's a hard thing to do. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers, even if a person is caught in some transgressions, you who are spiritual should correct that one in a gentle spirit. Okay, remember that. In a gentle spirit, looking to yourself so that you also may not be tempted. Because it then may be very easily, as Paul is noting to the church in Galatia, you can very easily fall into anger or pride thinking that I'm better than you because I'm the one correcting you, and so you have to be very cautious when you correct, always doing so with a gentle spirit. But it doesn't take away our responsibility. If God is calling us, placing that awareness on our heart that something is awry in the body of Christ, we need to do something about it. But the challenge for us is to do it in the way that Jesus prescribes. Because the way most people do it is they go straight to Twitter and they start talking about all the problems in the church or they start gossiping with their friends. Did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about such-and-such? Did you hear about this and that that's going on in the church? If we have a problem with someone, we need to go to them directly. I was watching this clip of an interview with Tom Holland who plays the new Spider-Man, if you know who that is. And he was saying that one of the best things he ever heard in an interview, he he attributed this to Christian Bale, who ironically played Batman. um, But apparently Christian Bale said in an interview that he kind of lives by this kind of advice uh, or this kind of mantra. um, If you have a problem with me, call me. And if you don't have my number, you don't know me well enough to have a problem with me. And so remember, all of this has to be done with a gentle spirit and in the context of a relationship. And so, if we feel it's very easy to gossip about this publicly or to run to online, like online to shout our opinions about something, but we're not having any effort, putting any effort into actually reaching out to this person to correct them, that's when we can incur sin on ourselves. So, we have to be very cautious. But the, the challenge for us, be aware and recognize when the Holy Spirit's prompting you to correct or recognizing that something in the church might be awry, to go to that person privately and talk to them about it. Yes, Cynthia. I just can't agree
2: with. It. Mm-hmm. And it's this if two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my Heavenly Father. I mean, there's examples of you're praying with other people for maybe the health of a third person, you know, and that person dies. I mean, this can't be right. So there's got to be something behind it that I'm not understanding.
0: So if the person dies and they're in heaven, are they healthy now?
2: I'm just saying I'm just saying you're not
0: getting what you prayed for. Yes, you're not getting what you prayed for in the way that you maybe thought you would get it, but it doesn't mean you're not getting what you prayed for. I could find another example. Yes, yeah. No, no, no. So but that's the thing with prayer that we talk about a lot. When Jesus Jesus has more than this one occurrence of this type of statement. You know, so the 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 issue is the you know, where two or three or where two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them. What about the times when this doesn't happen? Well, it often doesn't happen in the way that we ask or the way that we expect. But God grants everything to us in his time according to his plan. And so if we ask for something, he will give it, but he will often not give it in the time, in the way, in the manner that we expected. You know, and ultimately, everything, hopefully, leads to heaven, and we are granted everything in heaven. And so God knows in the divine providence of his own plan how all these things fit together. So it's a, yes, this is true what Jesus is saying, but it often doesn't seem true because of the preconceived notions we have about what we're praying for, what it will look like if it's granted. Um, so that, that's the harder part of that teaching. But it, it, if Jesus said it, it's true. We just have to ask, why is it true? How is it true? Yeah? In verse
2: 17, what does it mean to be treated as a Gentile? Or
0: a tax Great question. So what does it mean to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector in verse 17? So this gets to um, kind of the church teaching on something called excommunications. So we've taught, we, I think we've talked about this before, um, but as a refresher, so this is kind of where some of this authoritative ability the church has to uh, talk about excommunications comes from. So an excommunication, uh, a misconception most people have about an excommunication is that an excommunication is the church kicking somebody out. And that is not what an excommunication is. Okay, The church, just like this is preceded by the parable of the lost sheep, the church doesn't kick anyone out. The church is going after the lost. What an excommunication is, it is a public declaration and recognition that you have already separated yourself from the church. And so a bishop, this often happens with people in public office. I think the last time we talked about this was around the time this happened to Nancy Pelosi and her local bishop had told her that she was misrepresenting Catholic values in a public way and that he was excommunicating or issuing an edict of excommunication, I can't remember the exact language, but declaring that she had excommunicated herself from the community because she was representing things publicly that the church doesn't represent, but calling herself a Catholic. And so what the bishop did is he recognized there's something scandalous about what you're doing. People have tried to correct you. You have persisted in that. So I am recognizing the fact that you have already separated yourself from the community. So that's what excommunication means. Ex, out of, communicate, out of the community. So the bishop is saying, you have separated yourself from the community. And he is issuing that not to say, okay, we're done with you. He's issuing that as a corrective measure to invite the person back into community. So excommunications are always recognitions of an action, an invitation to correction. It's not, you are kicked out, bye-bye, see you later, go straight to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200. That's not what an excommunication is, okay? It is a recognition someone has already separated themselves from the community, and it's been done in such a public, visible, or scandalous way that the bishop needs to take action because it's causing confusion. And it's that bishop's responsibility, as the steward of all the souls in his region, to act on behalf of the body of Christ in his region. Because remember, if one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer because of it. And so the goal of any excommunication is reconciliation. That's the goal. This is partly where that comes from in Scripture. So to treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector, what is a Gentile? Someone outside of the community. Remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, so he's using Jewish language. Okay? So a Gentile was the word they had for anyone outside of their community. So that's someone who separates themselves. A tax collector is someone who is a sinner and continues in their sin because they're taking advantage of their people. So that is exactly what happens when a bishop or the church issues an excommunication. They're saying this person is outside of the community, and they're choosing to remain in their sin. But we still reach out to them, hoping they'll be reconciled. But using those two examples of someone outside of the community, a Gentile, and someone who remains in their sin, a tax collector, helps us understand what that means. Does that make sense? Great. Yes, Miguel? I wish the church did a better job, though,
2: with that, because I mean, I think I have people you hear someone excommunicated, we understand you're, you're out there, you know? mm-hmm. You're not being invited back. I mean, that other part that you said, you don't hear
0: it. Yes. Yeah, and maybe we don't assume that, but I think if, if you read any letter or recognition of excommunication, you'll see the language in there. It's always an invitation for correction, conversion, reconciliation. So, but we just hear that word. I mean, it just sounds like excommunicate, like it just like execute. It kind of sounds like very authoritative, you know, just in the way it rolls off your tongue. What's that called? When someone has something has a, 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 a connotation, a negative connotation. It just sounds bad. Um, and it is a serious matter. It's not like all hunky dory, like you're excommunicated. You know, it's like, this is not a good thing that this is happening, but the goal is that something good would come from it. Okay. The goal is not the church severing its relationship with anyone because the church is seeking the salvation of all people, right? Go and baptize all nations. In the name of the father son and the holy spirit we're meant to seek after every person just like the parable before this reminds us no one is expendable okay no, no one is expendable so next excommunication, is the bishop as the shepherd recognizing hey you're a sheep that wandered off i'm trying to come get you but you got to help me out here come back this way sheep because i want i want to bring you back in that's why this parable is right before this because otherwise it would say, if the, the sheep wanders off, like, well, forget it. It's going to fall in a ditch and die, and we're good with the 99. Like, that's kind of what we think when we hear the word excommunication, but that's not what the church means. Yeah. Yes, it's the same thing where people have a confusion about why does God send people to hell? He doesn't. People, by their choices, send themselves to hell because they separate themselves from God. God is just telling you the decision you made at your judgment. He's revealing that to you. And excommunication is the same way. It's an authoritative act of the church telling you that you have separated yourself from the church, hoping that you will come back into right relationship with God and the church again. Yes. Yeah. So the question is, why do have to come back to confession? Yes. Yeah. To come back to confession. No. No, because a confession is properly ordered to the forgiveness of mortal sins, which are the serious sins. And serious sins, what they do is they Uh, are an act of turning our back on God, so we break our relationship with God, and we break our relationship with the community. So we need to go to confession for those, because we go to the priest, who is the only person who has authority to both represent God and the community in one person. That's why we confess our sins to a priest, at least our serious ones, because those are the two relationships that are broken, that only the priest can reconcile. So yes, it would be an act of confession, and it might involve some kind of public declaration depending on how public the scandal was no no and anyone in a state of mortal sin that is unrepentant or unconfessed is not meant to receive communion either you're meant to go to confession because you've turned your back in a sense on God um, and you need to you need to repair that it's just like if you know a uh, uh, someone in a marriage cheats on their spouse, they can't just come back in and be like, okay, I guess I'm sleeping in the bed tonight. It's like, no, it's the couch for you until we fix this. you know. And so it's the same thing with communion. It's like, you don't go to receive that after you've already like turned your back on God. It's the couch for you for now <laughs> until you go to confession, and then we're back in right relationship again. Yes, Connor. Uh,
1: on, on verse 18, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, the bounding and the loosing, mm-hmm. uh, something very central to the Catholic faith in and, and marriage is... Temporally bound and loose mm-hmm. uh, in our lifetimes, it's dissolved when we go to heaven. Hopefully, mm-hmm. um, is that a sign that this verse points more so towards the apostles and less so towards what for, we're doing, or I don't know. I'm a
0: little confused by it. So yeah, we don't, as lay people, have the authority to bind and loose. So this in these verses kind of encapsulates the whole activity of the church. So you and I are in these first two steps, okay? Go to the person in private. If they don't listen to you, go take two others with you. If that doesn't happen, appeal to the hierarchy of the church because they have the authority to take this to its further steps. We do not. And so there's wisdom in that, that the church is not expected to be aware of absolutely everyone's goings on because the church is meant to deliver to us the grace of God through the sacraments, you know, supply the different things that we need, you know, have different services that we that we uh, can partake of. But we as lay people We're out in all of those relationships. We're meant to live out in the world And so we're the first kind of line of defense to recognize these things often. Now if a priest or someone in the hierarchy hierarchy of the church recognizes this first, just because they're in the hierarchy doesn't mean they can't go to that person in private either. So this this first step can apply to anybody, but then as you progress in this means of correction, if the person is obstinate and they're saying, no, I don't think this is a sin, or I don't care what you think, or I'm not going to change, then we have to work toward further means of involving the church because it's potentially causing the church scandal. Okay, So remember, this is baptized believers who are members of the church Okay, because of the responsibility we have in the body of Christ and the scandal that can cause the church. Okay, if people were unbaptized or out there, they're sinning, we still want to preach the good news to them and let them to, let them know that forgiveness of their sins is possible, but they're not causing scandal to the Catholic Church. They have no affiliation. So this wouldn't apply to them. We should still try and correct them, but just the ordinary means of evangelization and preaching the gospel to them, that's our primary goal for those people.
2: Question. Yes. If the bishops get together and they pray and they agree that what used to be considered a mortal sin is no longer a sin, can they authoritatively declare that as a
0: dogma of the So if the bishops gather together and agree that something is no longer a mortal sin, can that be dogmatically declared no longer a mortal sin? Well, I think the issue is um, no mortal sins are dogmatically declared. Only the conditions under which something can be called a mortal sin are dogmatically declared. Because, uh, let's say, the death of another person. If I unintentionally kill someone in self-defense, that's different than if I murder someone in cold blood. And so the act of something called murder, which would encapsulate all of those sins, you know, just speaking scripturally, um, there's different degrees. Whether you were aware of that, whether you fully consented to it, whether you were under the influence, whether you were in a survival situation, all of those things apply. So often the church doesn't make those declarative statements. Now, the church will make general statements about the fact like if you are, um, if you receive or participate in the, um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of, in the act of an abortion, that can incur an automatic excommunication. If you are, I mean, there are certain things that incur an automatic excommunication. Most of them apply to priests, priests who do things in their priesthood they're not supposed to do. Um, Very few also can apply to lay people. That's one of them. Um, A very common one is uh, if someone is. Married they're divorced and then they're remarried without an annulment. Um, you're considered kind of separated from the community, which is why you can't receive communion. You should still be coming to church and try and reconcile and receive that annulment, but it kind of separates you from the community because you're no longer living out the sacramental life. So and that can cause scandal. So but most of those things are not dogmatically different. Those things aren't necessarily dogmas, they're doctrines, teachings of the church. Very few things are considered dogmas. They're the central thing. like The creed, the sacraments, the dogmatic beliefs on Mary, those are pretty much like the things that are dogmatically declared. So, And because those things have already been revealed by Jesus, and it's part of our public revelation, uh, we would entrust the fact that the Holy Spirit would guide the Church and that the bishops would never contradict that teaching of Jesus or seek to change it. That's part of the reason we know that, that the Holy Spirit continues to guide the Church, that we've never gone back and try to reverse any of these teachings of Jesus. And even if that has been attempted, it's never been successful. Yeah. So I would say no, because the bishops in union with the Pope would have the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to never be able to do that in the first place. And then as the caveat, most of them aren't dogmatically defined in the first place. Yeah. Other questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you? Yes? Well, I think the only time, just a
2: few days ago, when I told about the bishop the Pope, and that the Pope was, I forgot when he said we get it, about the American, and I forgot that he said it again. But then at the end, it said that he disagreed with people who are married and divorced and remarried.
0: Yeah, well, and the Pope can kind of say what he wants to say when he's giving a press conference, you know. It's true. A lot of people, there's a real big problem in the Church. People think Pope Francis is confusing. I think most Catholics are confused about what to, when Pope Francis is speaking authoritatively. Like, if most Catholics don't know, like, when to listen and know that this is Church teaching and when to know, like, Pope Francis is just giving his opinion in a press conference and it's not Church teaching whenever the guy opens his mouth, that's kind of our responsibility, not his. Like people are asking him questions and he's trying to be pastoral and minister and i think we have a tendency to forget that the holy spirit is guiding the church and the holy spirit's smarter than we are and that all these problems are not going to cause the church to fall apart just because we have a potentially confusing pope you know uh, we also have a pope who is the most public publicly accessible and recorded pope of all time because of technology so I'm sure there's a lot of crazy stuff the previous popes said, but we just don't know about it because there weren't news reporters around all the time. But we have records of all the dogmatic authoritative things that they wrote because those have to do with church teaching. Okay, So if Pope Francis is speaking authoritatively on a matter of faith and morals and he's using the authoritative language of the church to issue a church teaching or change a church teaching, which he has, then we know about that. So he changed a church teaching on, uh, or an expression of a church teaching, on capital punishment. It became a paragraph in the catechism, or changed to a paragraph in the catechism, because that wasn't a binding dogma. It was something that can change or evolve over time, and he, he changed that. So, but yeah, what he says in a press conference, what he issues, you know, someone overhears Pope Francis in a conversation in a, you know, a lobby of a hotel somewhere, like, you know, who cares? You know, if he's not speaking authoritatively on matter of faith and morals, You know, I can say stuff in the you know lobby of a of a movie theater that I hope people don't take it seriously that if I'm like preaching the gospel, you know, so yeah. Plus it's the media also, so yeah. Yes.
2: Can you give us an example? We were wondering uh, about whatever you use on earth shall be used in heaven.
0: So that binding and loosing, let's say we can apply it to an excommunication. Okay? If someone uh, decides that they are a, they're a public figure in the church, they publicly renounce the Catholic Church, a bishop could issue an excommunication saying, what you've done is binding on you. Okay? They're binding them to their sin because you've decided to not correct yourself. Now, if that person then has a change of heart and comes back to the church, then the bishop could loose that excommunication, lift it. Okay, And so the same thing can be applied to sins in confession, even though the language is used elsewhere in John 20, forgive and retain, that you are loosing the consequences of sin on your soul when you go to confession, that the priest has the authority to do that. So those are two examples, but there, there are probably others as well.
2: So it could also be connected to like releasing evil spirits, somebody that's possessed or sickness or... Oh, sure. All that, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yes, yeah, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, you, you could totally interpret it that way, yeah, because people can bind themselves to things through connections with evil spirits, through practices of the occult, and so the authority of the church given to them by Jesus and the power of the name of Jesus can drive those things out and claim authority over them, and so that's another way that um, the, the ministry of exorcism is one that's proper to the bishop. The bishop can delegate that to who he chooses, so every diocese on the planet has one, at least one designated exorcist for their diocese. And there's a whole process that if someone believes they need an exorcism or someone they know needs an exorcism, there's a whole process. There's paperwork, believe it or not. It's paperwork you fill out if you think you need an exorcism. So uh, it's crazy, but it's because the church has that authority to bind and to loose. Okay? So there's a comedian I know who she says, like, you know, people always make fun of Catholics or misunderstand us until their houses are haunted or until they think they're possessed. And no one's saying, call the non-denominational worship leader. They call, they call the Catholic church, you know. You, know, you don't ask Greg to come over in his skinny jeans and play a chorus of how he loves. Like, you ask the Catholic priest to come over with the crucifixes and the holy water. Like, everybody knows, even if you're not Catholic, like, there's something about the authority the priests have that can get rid of stuff that the rest of us can't. So, yeah, that's good stuff. Connor? <laughs> uh, on, on the discussions about Pope Francis
1: and what he says, um, dog, or what he changes dogmatically versus just what he says in passing, yes, um, I was just wondering your opinion. I know it's a little unrelated to the gospel, but um, like, why do we so often allow our political or even sometimes philosophical moral readings influence our view of someone who, I guess, on paper or I mean, in action, has done very, made changes to dog or to make changes to catechism, make changes mm-hmm. to how our faith may be expressed, but fundamentally, it's not gone against anything that the Church has taught for
0: thousands of years. Yeah. I think maybe the way that the Church is taught, or the teachings of the Church are taught, are often politicized to us, and we, we inherently marry those two things. And also, we live in a country that is predominantly a Protestant country, and sometimes we forget that as Catholics. Like America was founded as a Protestant country. Catholics were persecuted in a minority for a long time in America. You could argue still today, you know, in some ways. but. Um, So we live in a predominantly Protestant country and a lot of political values especially conservative political values got married with Protestant values to where They were completely similar and so when people think Christianity even Catholics sometimes in America when we think Christianity We automatically think sometimes that those two are completely aligned and they're not Catholicism doesn't fit in any one political party in fact It has serious tensions and difficulties with either of the main two and so it's something we have to keep in mind and we have to be aware of the ways that that might be informing how we look back at the church. And also, if we're caught in an echo chamber of the media that we, we watch or that we consume. If all we're consuming is stuff that we automatically agree with and we're just spouting it out, and we're not analyzing it critically, checking the sources, making sure we know church teaching, and that we're adhering to church teaching over the, over how much we adhere to CNN or Fox News or whatever, you know, uh, then we need to be aware that we are but possibly looking at a news network as our Messiah and not Jesus. Or thinking that the news networks cannot err, but recognizing maybe the Catholic Church can. And that is, that's a dangerous place to be in as a believer. So I have the utmost faith in the Holy Spirit running the church, and I have no qualms about the state of the church. I don't think the church is in any bad situation because I trust the Holy Spirit. He's gotten us this far, you know, and if it is the end, praise God, we'll be in heaven soon. And if it's not, praise God, because the Holy Spirit's in charge and he knows way more than I do. So when people preach all of this, like, fire and brimstone and the church is in a bad state and our Pope is confusing, I'm like, get over it, man. Like, Do you you not remember when, like, all the stuff in the past was happening, you know, like, the Pope was getting assassinated by the mob, and like, you know, we're fine. You know, like, we're good. We're a lot better. Uh, we're weathering these things a lot better than in previous seasons in the, in the church. So, yeah, I, I I don't think there's any room for that in Catholicism. Uh, when people ask me, are you Republican or a Democrat? I say I'm a Roman Catholic, and I think that is something we should all say. So, yeah, yes, sir.
1: Did um, authority? Like, how as how far does like our lay authority go? What extent?
0: So in what, in what context? How far does our lay authority go? I'm not
1: sure. We like, so, were talking about laying on hands and stuff
0: earlier. Oh, yes. Okay. So in that instance, like laying on hands, or like Laura was mentioning, like the driving out of spirits. So the ministry of exorcism is proper to the priesthood and, and the, the episcopal uh, hierarchy, the bishops. But we as lay people have the authority to do things like deliverance prayer or healing prayer in the name of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who heals. It's Jesus who drives out demons. It's no bishop or priest, but he gave the authority to the bishops and priests to use that higher level of the ability to use Jesus' name. So we have the ability to pray things like deliverance and healing prayer. doesn't mean it's going to happen, but we need to do it in the right way in the name of Jesus, and we have the ability to do that as lay people. But when it comes to the minor or major rites of exorcism, that's proper to uh, the bishop and who he delegates that to. In this context, fraternal correction, we have our role in these first two steps. We cannot go any further, which is why the church needs to get involved. Yeah, great question. One thing I want to bring up before we end that no one has asked her and we and I have not talked about yet is um, why why step two? Why step two in here? Go and take two or three witnesses. Why? Why not just go straight to the church? Yeah. Yeah, you could be wrong. You could be wrong. Isn't that so wise? Like that Jesus knew, like we need to build in a safeguard for us to have charity toward each other as brothers and sisters. To know that if I go to someone in private and they're like, no man, you're crazy. Like you're wrong. And you go take two other people and you show up and they're like, no, he's right. You are crazy. Like you're, you're not saying the right thing. Then we don't even need to involve the hierarchy of the church. We, can, we have to be open immediately when we are convicting others or seeking to correct others in their sin. We need to have that humility and recognize, I'm just as big a sinner. Okay, so if I'm bringing this up, it's only to pursue reconciliation. This is uh, from Sirach chapter 19, verse 13. It says, Admonish your friend, he may not have done it, and if he did, that he may not do it again. Admonish your neighbor, he may not have said it, and if he did, that he may not do it again. Admonish your friend, often it may be slander, do not believe every story. And so this builds on existing Hebrew wisdom that we need to be aware that our perceptions of other people may be incorrect. So we need to have the humility to go and make sure our assumptions or our perception of the other person are correct and legitimate. And if they are, the others agree with us. And we have to make sure we're not just bringing in ringers who we know like don't like that person, that we have to be charitable in the people that we bring in and get involved. And if they corroborate that, then... We appeal to the church. But there's always an openness that we could be wrong. Laura, did you have something?
2: Um, I, I just think also with knowledge comes responsibility because we can we come into we can get into like a self righteousness state where we Yes. we where we know so much like that you were saying and, and it's and it's good that we know a lot mm-hmm. we are supposed to not be ignorant, but that we become so self righteous that I have so much knowledge that we don't have the mercy and the compassion that, that Always be before everything else, mercy, compassion, and when we talk to somebody where we know we're right, if, if we have that spirit, that that of of feeling. Not I'm gonna go tell them, but that we actually don't want to do it, and that we say mm-hmm. we bad, but help me, Lord, because I don't want to. That's when we know we're we're doing the right thing. But when we're like yes, and, we, and saying I'm gonna go tell them, and I'm going I need to tell. them, that's when it's wrong to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to have that humbleness and to know that I feel hurtful and I feel sad and I feel sorrowful that this is happening, that I have to do it because it's going to come up right in love yeah. versus, you know, you need to do this and you need to do that. And sometimes I think in the church, we have a lot more people doing that versus doing this. Yeah, But like you said, everything is being led by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're going to have to be in in prayer and praying a lot before we take any action. Yeah. Because we're going to be led by the Holy Spirit, not by our own
1: self.
0: You know, needs. yeah, yeah, we have to be very cautious against that self righteous attitude. It's an easy question to ask yourself. If you're ever in this situation, ask yourself this question Do I want to prove to the other person that they're wrong and I'm right? Or do I want both of us to get to heaven? And that will clarify if it's the right time to go and talk to this person. If it's sincerely out of a desire to sanctify both of us and make sure we're both on that path to heaven, then do it. And do it with a gentle spirit, like it says in Galatians. But recognize, like Laura was saying, that, that knowledge leads to responsibility. It reminded me of James chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for we realize that we will be judged more strictly. So if we have the knowledge, going back to the first reading, you'll hear in Ezekiel 33, if I tell you something and you go and tell them, then you're free if, if, if they correct themselves or not. But if you, if you don't tell them and they die in their sin, you are going to be held responsible for their blood. So we have a responsibility, but we need to make sure we're checking ourselves and doing everything with a gentle spirit. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this study, the gift of this word. Help us to always be open to your Holy Spirit, open to correction and improvement ourselves, and always seeking after heaven. So that no action of correction that we might undertake for others would be done out of self-righteousness, pride or anger, but would, would be done out of a severe, a sincere effort, sincere effort, for us and everyone we know to get to heaven. So we pray Jesus that you would help us in the ways we most need it this week, to keep moving forward on that path toward heaven, to pray for those who cause scandal to the church, to be honest about the ways we have the capacity to cause scandal to the church and to always assume good intentions, to always operate with charity, to not gossip, but to come before our brothers and sisters who you've placed in our life when things need correcting out of love and hope for reconciliation. So let us begin and end all of these things in prayer, all by the power of your mighty name and through your guidance, Lord. We pray all these things. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.